Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is the Chief Executive Officer of the Clicks Group, Bettina Engelbrecht. Clicks is a leading health and beauty retailer listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange with over 800 stores, more than 600 in-store pharmacies, and a loyalty program exceeding 9.7 million active members. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Jumping straight in, during your career, you've occupied several operational as well as senior leadership positions with both local and multinational entities, Clicks, obviously, Shell, Sea Harvest, South African Airways, and you also worked at Transnet. Please, can you take us through some of the milestones in your journey thus far? Well, you know, the interesting thing is my parents say I was three years old when I decided I wanted to become a lawyer. <laughs> and people often ask me, you know, how do you apply that? And I say every single day because, you know, within the work environment, of course, the employment relationship is a contract. But what uh, really informed my choice of law was the sense that there was something beyond the letter of the law about, you know, how do we get to the ethos of what law is around fairness and equity and uh, this notion of justice. So I would say to you throughout my career, these probably are the building blocks uh, of my career, this notion of fairness, of equity and of justice. I've also been very fortunate because a career or a you know qualification in law, and particularly because I did my master's in, in commercial law, has enabled me, if you will, to expand my, my sense of, of what it means to be within the commercial space. So, of course, I mean, I've, I've really started out in the uh, HR space, and, and originally I started as a research assistant. And um, obviously, after qualifying as an attorney and all of those <laughs> sort of good things, but I can recall it was at that point in South Africa, it was just before the unbanning of the AMC, and I started working for Transnet. And um, I put together this weekly sort of research document that, you know, kind of indicated what was happening. And I can recall after about a two-month period, the paper was out late. It wasn't out at 12 o'clock. And I had so many emails and calls with like, where's your document? And then I realized... I had found a way to make what was happening within the socio-political and the employment law space relevant for people. Uh, and that that's actually where they took the value out of it. And, and out of that, I learned a very important lesson that sometimes, you know, when you are highly educated, I mean, you're a, you're a doctor, you know, you've got to simplify concepts for people and you've got to make it relatable to them. So that's probably something that I learned from that. And then I progressed. I was very fortunate within Transnet. Actually, I was promoted within a three-month period and I really progressed. I went from Spoonet as part of Transnet. And, and in that period, I worked on a lot of national projects. So I was very fortunate in being identified earlier on. So I worked on performance management, for example. I worked on a, a group-wide um, communication process. So all of these things kind of brought me to the attention, if you will, of, of higher levels of management. And then I went into South African Airways. And there I had massive exposure to the point that I kind of progressed out of HR to 
being responsible for managing about a third of the airline at that stage. And then, you know, it was at the time of the new government and transformation became incredibly important. And I managed uh, transformation for the whole of Transnet. And for about a year, I used to go to these small towns. And one of the things that I learned was that if you dressed up like a corporate, people were very wary of asking you questions. So out of that process, I learned the importance of being relatable and the importance of really addressing people in a way that they understand that you are, that you've stood where they've stood and that you understand their struggles and that you then can work, I think, with the suggestions that they put forward. Um, but after that whole thing, I mean, I, I then relocated to the Western Cape after having gone to Houting and I started with uh, Sea Harvest. And once again, I mean, I was in an incredible position. I was identified as talent. So at the time, Sea Harvest belonged to Tiger Brands. And Nick Dennis, who was then the group CEO of Tiger Brands, was on our board. And he took an interest in me. And, and Tiger Brands put up a its very first transformation board committee. And he co-opted executives such as myself onto that. And I learned such an incredible amount of uh, just insights, I think, that I got out of it and how to look very differently at, at problems and, and really be solution focused. And then, of course, I went um, to work for Shell. Once again, there, the experience was about really broadening you beyond South Africa. You know, how did you understand that the way we looked at transformation, for example, you know, globally, they were much more focused on gender, uh, as an example, not necessarily on race. And what did empowerment mean in an Arab country, for example, and how do we deal with conflict and diversity and inclusivity? So that's what I really learned out of Shell. And then once again, I was very fortunate because... I was identified and, and made the offer to join the Shell Southern Africa board as an executive director. And then just shortly after that, I came here to the Clicks group. And in a way, I took a step back <laughs> because I did not join the board when I, when I got here. Um, and I can remember David Neal, uh, I was his first appointment here in Clicks. And I asked him, what is it that you expect of me to do? And he said, I would like you to get the basics in place. And I said, what's the basics? He said, well, a performance management process, an employee well-being program. You know, could you work on long and short-term incentives and then job profiling and then maybe, you know, get recruitment right? And could you put in place a, a pay, pay framework? And I would really say to you, the building blocks of what has catapulted our organizational capability has probably been the work that we did in those very early years. And I knew I was at the right place because when we looked at the cost, if you will, of implementing an employee well-being program, that today, actually, when you look at our program in the organization, it's got the highest utilization rates worldwide of any employee well-being program. It's close to 22%. And we extended that to include household dependents because we understood it's not just about the employee. The employee is part of a larger ecosystem. I knew I was at the right place because he said, let's find the savings elsewhere and let's make this investment. And so, yeah, I was fortunate. Two years later, I was I was requested or invited to join the, the main board as an executive director. So I've been on the board since 2008 and part of the journey of the group as it really established itself as a phenomenally capable, growing organization focused really on doing good and seeing itself as a responsible corporate citizen in everything that we do. So when you think about market leadership around ESG, for example, you know, we've got a market leading position there. When you think about um, transformation or empowerment, we've got market leadership there, you know. So in a lot of our categories, 
that's what we stand for. And it's on the, on the back of people, really, that has that done this with us and for us uh, as an organization. That has been such a great journey. Thanks for sharing. When you talk about looking at studying law at the age of three, we've recently had a, a show where we focused on female judges, and they all seem to have been inspired at such an early age. I mean, to the extent that one of them, she said when she used to go to school, whenever she was on the stage, she'd be wearing her cape and getting prepared <laughs> as a primary school because this is what she was going to do. And I always find that people who've studied law have got such conviction and looking at core points. Like from your point of view, you were talking about fairness, equity, and, and justice. And as you walked us through your various stages in your career, you could really get the sense of growth and contribution to both the corporates that you were part of, but also society in general. I was interested when you were talking about Shell from a, a gender perspective, and naturally because our, our program is, is really focused on women. Can you tell us about some of the gender challenges that you've experienced and overcome during your career? I can remember when I was uh, working for Sea Harvest and we had this boardroom and I think I'd said to you earlier that uh, Nick Dennis was a member of our board. I mean, he chaired the board, actually. And when you're a female, and you, because we are often so helpful, and I got up at one of the very first meetings that he and I were both in the meeting, and I got up to kind of go and get the tea ready. And he said to me, not you. I'm going to do that. Because what I want you to think about for a moment is that you mustn't automatically go to where you're expected to go. He said, as the chairman of this board and as the chairman of the holding company, I'm going to practice service leadership and I'm going to show you a different way that you can show up. And from him, I learned a very important lesson. Sometimes as women, we automatically go to the place that we've almost been acculturated to. Like, you know, what is it that you've got to do to constantly serve? Nothing wrong with that. The difficulty is that sometimes people interpret that as that you are servile and don't necessarily think of you then as a contributor. The second bit is a lesson that I learned really from two of my previous CEOs. Louis Penzon was the, um, my head at um, Sea Harvest. In fact, even Dr. Benny Mokaba at Shell, but David Neal here as well. And that is about that you've got a voice. So very often as um, women, some of the challenges that we face is how do we cut into a discussion? What are those bridging phrases that we've got to use? How do we talk? Um, how do we show up in that meeting? How do we have our voice heard in that meeting? And sometimes you start off with a very little <laughs> low-level voice. I often find that women will say, sorry, it's like we apologize for making a contribution. Correct. No, you are so, so right. And, and I think it's about giving yourself permission because most of the time when we are sitting in those meetings and someone else is making a statement or a question or a comment, we hear it in our own heads and we realize, but I was thinking that same thing. I was just too slow to get to the point. So a valuable lesson that I've learned is really the quality of your preparation before the meeting to make little notes for yourself in terms of questions that you want to ask. And so that when you've gone through, you know, the meeting, you say, well, you know, there are a couple of questions or there are a couple of comments that I would just like to add to this particular discussion point. And so quality of preparation just enables you to perhaps be a bit more um, confident about making your points 
and, and, and having your voice heard within the meeting room itself. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to the CEO of the Clicks Group, Bettina Engelbrecht. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. If we turn now towards your current role, can you tell us about some of your plans for Clicks going forwards? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I was uh, with investors overseas and the one asked me a question he said to me so is your job now to sort of keep the seat warm for someone else and I said I think that if a board expected me to keep a seat warm I'm not the person that they should have asked um, and I think that that would do a huge disservice to any CEO position if somebody were brought in to only keep the seat warm. So let me then tell you a little bit about the strategy. So you know we've got a very well proven strategy. And over the last 15 years, it's the strategy hasn't changed. And it shouldn't change because it's been phenomenally successful. However, you know, what is what are the things that you've got to do to become more effective, to execute sharper, to extract efficiencies? Uh, and of course, I think if you're an investor in any company, you're asking yourself the question, where to from here? Where are the other opportunities for growth? So I think it's about really prying that open, you know, in terms of the discussions. I have generally found that most of the time, people in an organization know where to next. They just are not confident enough to articulate it, or they might have a sense that, you know, we we should be just pivoting a little bit from where we are. And so I found that, that uh, my way of managing is really around opening up the conversations because the answers are actually in the room. And so I reflect always on where I was before when I knew I had some of the answers, but I didn't always speak up early on in my career. So definitely it's about um, growing the pharmacy business, first of all, and that's really to be the, the customer's first choice in health and beauty retailing. The second bit uh, around that is how do we accelerate uh, uh, the opening up of our stores and our pharmacy network. In fact, on the 15th of November, I'll open up our 850th store. And between the end of August and the end of December, we'll actually open up 28 new stores this year. That creates phenomenal growth opportunities. We will get to the 700th um, pharmacy actually in this year. And all of this is about how do we ensure, because we've got a stated healthcare agenda, which is around how do we support the national government agenda of accessible and affordable healthcare in everything that we do within the organization? So that's always the lens through which we look at it. And then, of course, you know, we've got phenomenal market shares in, um, in beauty, for example, in personal care, in household electrical appliances. And so how do you begin to grow that uh, even more and adapt, uh, for example, AI in terms of the way you'd look at yourself, take a photograph, look at what lipstick you'll put on or blusher you'll put on, you know, how do I look if I put on lashes as an example. So really bringing AI also into the uh, into our world. And AI beyond that, uh, for example, when a customer goes, a patient goes to a doctor, how do we get the script from the doctor to a pharmacy so that by the time the person has left the doctor, they can go to their local pharmacy and actually pick up their medication already. So it's about, you know, how do you ensure that accessibility isn't just about where you're located, but how do you make it easy for the customer to get to where you are? I really appreciate what you're talking about from an accessibility point of view, because we can have 
everything we want, but if a person cannot access it, if they don't have adequate transportation, if if there's some kind of impediment, it doesn't matter. You you might as well not have that property in, in, in place. But you've got this amazing network, very, very expensive, 850 stores continuing to grow. I mean, getting another 28 before the end of the year. I want to ask you from your perspective, you've got a lot of experience in HR. You've also got your legal background. What would you say are, are some of your go-to leadership strategies? First and foremost, I believe that everybody wants to do well. That's a basic belief that I've got. And so the role of the leader is to remove obstacles that stands in the way of the person achieving that aspiration of always doing their best. It's about encouraging them. And really, I mean, I was brought up in the Socratic method where my father never gave us the answers. You know, it was through the inquiring question that you were led to the answer. And so I believe very, very firmly that if you've got functional expertise within your organization, that you've got to understand the right questions to ask them so that they come up with the solutions themselves. So an, a, a really firm belief that people want to do well, a very firm belief that the role of the leader is to ensure that you're removing the obstacles, that you motivate people, and that you ensure that, that they are provided with the resources in order for them to do their job well. I must say as well, I'm, I'm straightforward. I don't think anybody needs to wonder where it is that they stand with me, but I'll do it with kindness because I've always had a belief in everything that I do. I have to see in my engagements with the person sitting opposite me as though this were my mother or my sister or my brother. And so when I reflect on how did I treat people, even when it's a tough conversation about exiting an, an individual, how do you maintain dignity for that individual and respect for that individual through the process? And so I have, for, for example, found that there have been many people that I've exited. I've maintained relationships with them. And to me, that's the surest example that people have understood that it is never personal, that it is always ultimately about what's in the best interest of the organization and in the interest of that individual. Because sometimes people are just not in the right job or within the right organization. That's a really interesting insight. And as you say, it's it's testament to your, let's say, a proof in your practice of the way that you manage things, that you still maintain relationships, even if it has been an exit situation. Talking for a moment from a, a female leadership perspective, I'm still dismayed about the underrepresentation of women in corporate leadership positions. In 2021, PwC published a report on remuneration of executive directors in South Africa. Besides the gender pay gaps of almost 50% in median and upper quartiles, the point that really irked me the most was that only 13% of executive directors being CEOs and CFOs were women. And I find that incredibly alarming. Given all of your experiences across both local, multinational organizations, what are some of your views about how we can improve the number of women in decision-making roles? So I think that's an interesting statistic. So let's just look at the differences quickly, because I think that's where my answer is going to go to. When you look at it, you'll see greater representation of CFO women than CEO women. So, you know, what's that reason? First of all, there's an objective um, 
professional registration for CFOs, you know, to become chartered accountants. So first of all, the issue of does the person have the skill, that question no longer applies actually if you're a CA because you've got a professional body that ensures that the standards are all met. The second thing around that is I think that there's a very clear path for women within the CFO um, route, if you will, in terms of career progression. So the first I will say is make sure that you've got a quality education. The second bit is make sure that wherever you're going to be going in your first, second and third jobs, that those are reputable companies. Because very often you find yourself in a company that you really wish were not on your CV. Now let's come to CEOs. In South Africa, and why I start with the CFOs, many um, CEOs are coming from the CFO career path. So that actually augurs very well for the women that are already CFOs in organizations, because I think that they will almost have an easier path to the CFO, the CEO job than someone like myself has had. The second one that I was going to say is that women must put up their hand for projects. They must, uh, I think, within organizations, be willing to move sideways. Sometimes don't just stay within your functional area. Um, the other one that I was going to say is that in my career, even though I've been in HR for most of the time, actually I've had such varied projects that I've worked on, that builds your skill set. So skill sets aren't just built or competencies in a linear fashion. You know, I go from one level to the other level. Look at broadening your competency set. Look at adding value. So that's that's probably what I, what I would have said. I, I also would have said, if you looked at us a year ago, we were less than three. When I looked at it, um, I think June month, we were already five. You know, so you can almost say there's been a tremendous improvement. And I think that the more of us that there are, the more we provide, we provide a signal, if you will, that if we really are successful, and I, and I speak to my fellow CEOs from time to time that are female, and we've got this great uh, sense of purpose of being successful, but doing so in a way that is supportive and doesn't denigrate other people. Because we've got this view that says we understand that we are here to represent, that women can do the work. And so we almost have this purpose to really be great at what it is that we're doing, to be able to show that the woman CEO can be a tremendous asset to any organization. So I think that the progress has been incredibly slow, but now for the first time, you actually see at the listed company level that there are female CEOs being appointed, and that's going to create tremendous, I think, opportunities for other women to follow in our suite suit. Do you think this also speaks to succession planning and purposely, you know, looking at you as an example, you, you grew within the clicks environment that if women are earmarked in the organization along that executive suite and mentored, coached to almost grow and nurture an organization's own timber into an effective leader, what, what is your view on, on those types of methods? I absolutely believe in that. Um, you know, one of the things that we're very good at in our organization is talent and succession planning. And much of what I implemented in the HR practice came from the learnings that I had garnered through my shell, you know, career about, you know, how do you do this in a very deliberate, purposeful fashion? And I would agree with you, you know, we've had, for example, particular functional areas where we either haven't seen women progress or we haven't seen people of color progress. 
And it really was sitting at and understanding what are the obstacles, why are we not getting people, uh, and why are people not staying? Uh, and so it's identifying those sorts of environmental factors that can uh, prohibit the progression of women and of people of color within organizations. And so we were very deliberate about that. The second bit is I spoke earlier about some of the women that I engage with that are, you know, CEOs uh, such as myself or manage their own companies. And we are very mindful of the fact that we've got to mentor others because the challenges that we go through, you spoke earlier on, there were many others, you know, about you've got, you've got a husband and you've got kids and how do you sort of balance all of that, you know, that we all have to live through and go through. So to speak to other women who face similar challenges and can, can kind of point the way forward, like, you know, what is it that you've got to do? You know, where do you pull on resources? And then don't be shy to put up your hand. I had a young lady come and see me the other day and she said, I admire you. I've never met you, but I really am looking for a mentor. And so I want to come and introduce myself to you. So that's the other thing. I think that we should not be reticent about approaching people uh, that we admire, male or female, um, that can help us to grow our particular competency set and form part of a network. Because the reality is, unless you've got a network, it's very difficult to progress because the first thing that people think about when they say, well, I know somebody, uh, you know, I can refer you to somebody. So I would also say, you know, really, really grow your network. These are some of the things that have been instrumental uh, in my own career path. You spoke about almost the female CEO network. Is that a formalized structure? How, how does it work? Because as you get network effects and the more nodes that are connected, the greater the opportunity of connecting and it just grows. So is this a formalized structure that you have to encourage more women? It's not formalized, but let me give you two examples. I mean, I joined, first of all, because I understand that it's not just about the organization. It's also about the contribution that the organization needs to make to the broader society. So when the um, UN Global Compact called and said, you know, would you consider serving on the UN, on the SA chapter of the UN Global Compact? I said, yes. The amazing thing is the women that I've met on that UN Global Compact. I mean, they are formidable, phenomenal. I mean, one, for example, is the CEO of Bitvest, hasn't come through the CFO, but came from a financial background. She is a firecracker. Then I look at uh, one of the executive directors there that's actually on the process board, which is one of the uh, NASPERS, you know, the, the split off from NASPERS, Putty, phenomenal woman. So I can tell you that I've been exposed there to women that I'm almost in awe of and that I'm learning from. But the second bit is when I got appointed, the women that reached out so we often have this thing that says women are, P are full of PhDs, pull her downs. I have not found that. I've actually found women reaching out, offering advice, just saying, look, you're too busy right now, but when you've got time, let's meet up for a cup of coffee. Let's talk. And if you've got any challenge, I'm here to assist you and to help you. The other point that I, I do want to uh, make is that it's not just women. Men are in influential positions and they can influence the progression of women. And so it's also tapping into male networks and males who are progressive, who can advance gender empowerment in the organizations where they are. And if there's any other one that I would leave, uh, leave you with, 
it is that the UN actually has uh, women's empowerment principles, gap analysis that you can do within your own organization. And it is phenomenal because the insights in the first year that we did that, you know, we were in the achiever categories because we do a lot of things really well. But that gap that we were able to identify led to actionable interventions that we could do. And hardly 18 months later, we were actually in the leader category from achiever through to leader. And it's those things that there really are people that have already done phenomenal work. And that if we can tap into the work of those individuals that can help us in our organizations, I think it's phenomenal. I was also going to say, I, I spoke uh, on at Women's Day at the Technicon here, their Women's Day. Now, people ask me, you know, out of all the things that you get, why did you go there? It was because a woman asked me. So, you know, what are the things that we must also do to support other women when it comes to their wanting to make a difference and their work where they are to be able to uplift them? I spoke at a small um, organization the other day, and they do work uh, around career development, focused on, on, on um, high school kids. They do phenomenal work. And why did I go there, take an hour and a half out of my time to drive to a small church hall where they were doing this? It is because it is headed up by a woman. So all the time in all of our actions, let's ask ourselves the question, what am I also doing to affirm other women where they are to help them to become phenomenal and to be recognized for the work that they're putting into where they are at. That's a great ethos, and it just accelerates the support notion. And if we can keep building one another up, we are benefiting the prosperity of, of humanity. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and today we're talking to the CEO of the Clicks Group, Bettina Engelbrecht. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Turning towards more of a personal perspective, and we are, I realize, running out of time here. It's, um, I wish we had more. But education, and you mentioned it earlier, having that quality education is so integral to the way that you move forwards. It is a priority for us in the show because I believe it empowers women, it empowers girls with knowledge. You hold your master's in commercial law, you're a bachelor of laws, a BPROC, and you also completed your high school studies in California via an American field scholarship. What role would you say that education has played in your life? There's a, um, a little slogan that says, you know, people often ask, I suppose people like you, Amalay, or people like myself, you know, you've been so lucky. And I'm a firm believer that luck actually happens when preparation and opportunity meet. And so education is the preparation uh, for you so that when the opportunity arises, you are ready for that opportunity. And so I see education as part of that because it empowers us, first of all. And then secondly, it's a way of affirming us and building our confidence because we know that objectively we can do the work because we've been assessed and that's, you know, that's important. But when you are, when you are given that opportunity, like I was an uh, AFS student, and really, you know, I went from a school in a from a very impoverished um, community, you know, low, low, low LSM. And I went to one of the top 10 schools in the States. And, and honestly, I did extremely well, <laughs> you know, so much so that I actually got a scholarship out of that. And that paid for my university uh, because my parents were both professionals, but my parents were like, you've got to earn the right to go to university and you're going to pay for yourself. And that has to come out of hard work. 
And so I look at education as well. When you completed it, if you think that less than 22% of kids that start grade one actually end up at grade 12, and of that, only 17% finish university qualification. So we are of the few. And so when you are looking at individuals within the organization, you're always looking for a proven track record. People that are therefore completed an education gives you the assurance that they know the hard work that it takes to complete something. So those are finisher completers. And so that's just what I would say. Where you've studied or what you've studied isn't the most important thing. It's whether or not you have internalized that knowledge. And then secondly, whether or not at the end of all of that, you've developed critical thinking skills. One question that I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the factors that they consider to have contributed to their success. And I I find it a bit like a a recipe. Everybody's got a, a different suite of ingredients that they bring in. So can you share with us what have been some of your factors of success? I would say, first of all, I was really fortunate. I was born into a family that valued education. And allied to that, I was born in a family where my father believed that women could do anything. So, you know, I think he really kind of uh, installed in us that there's now four girls and and (laughs) one boy uh, in our family. The other one was that, you know, my mother started uh, studying when I was sort of in grade 10 and um, ultimately finished her her studies and became a registered nursing practitioner and did all a whole, whole host of courses after that. But I saw the commitment and I saw how my father sat with her every evening and translated from Afrikaans to English, because she was English, all of those textbooks for her and sat with her throughout the night as she completed her studies. So that's the first thing. I was fortunate in the family. Secondly, I was fortunate that I had teachers that really um, advocated for me. The reason that I got to do the uh, American Field Scholarship in the States and you know got the opportunity after that was because a language teacher saw my potential and he put my name forward. And, and of course, I had to do the work after that. But, but the thing is that he said, I think that she will qualify and go through all of the steps. And then I've had incredible um, mentors throughout my life who have really put effort into helping me to grow, um, have taken the time to pull me aside when perhaps I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't sufficiently challenging. I didn't put things across in the correct way. And they just showed me a kinder way that I could maybe just put my points across or a different way that I could behave and and be within an organization. And they showed me very active support. So that's the third thing that I would say, you know, I had phenomenal um, mentors. And then I think it's very difficult for a woman with a family to be successful, unless you've got a partner that is supportive. Now, my husband passed away three years ago uh, due to uh, cancer, but I would have said I I was extremely fortunate to have a male partner in my life that was absolutely supportive. And I remember once, you know, in a rural area, people said, you know, you know, your wife actually earns more money than you. And he said, you don't understand. My wife is able to do what she does because I am alongside her. And I think for a man in that circumstance to have that sense of self, and not to feel put down, I think incredibly important. And then I would say the final thing, I have a network of phenomenal women around me um, who always support me, you know, who always 
they are there for me. I can go to them with any problem that I've got or any challenge and they are, they'll drop whatever they have and, and they'll be there to support me. So I would say those are the things that have um, made my life easier. Thank you so much for sharing them. And they sound like elements that have been built up over time from your family environment through to your social structures, through expanding onto professional networks, but being able to, to cultivate these relationships. And again, the, the people element is, is an enduring part of today's conversation. Lastly, as we close out the discussion, please, can you use this platform to share a few words of inspiration or motivation with women who are listening to us? I was um, reflecting as I was driving the other day, and I had this thing about, you know, wow, about all of us are women of worth. We actually human beings of worth. And so we really have to believe in ourselves. First and foremost, you know, it's the thing that I would say. The second one that I would say is that wherever we are, if we can be kind and supportive of someone else, when we have got no benefit that we can realize from that, I can assure you that will come back in different ways in your future. When you are least expecting it, somebody will come forward and they will help you when you need the help the most. And then I would say, you know, just I I have always, all of us have got uh, extra funds. I mean, at the kind of level where I am at. I have over many years always donated my money um, that I've got for the education of girl children. Uh, and I really take them from grade uh, 10 to grade 12 because that's so important if you can get girl children at that age to really have a sense of where they want to go one day. So can I just encourage all senior women that are listening to your program, Amalaya, if you've got anything extra, invest in a girl child because when we're investing in a girl child, we are building a community of women who will be there for their families and that will show that in their families there's a different way of being. When you when you are changing the life of a girl child, I firmly believe you are changing the life of a family. Thank you for that fantastic message. And I'm really glad you used our platform to make that appeal. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and we wish you every strength as you move forwards in the hot seat as CEO and continue to grow and expand the business. Thank you so much, Amalaya. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity, and we have been talking to the CEO of the Clicks Group, Bettina Engelbrecht.